and welcome to Ipsit Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Carmen G. Gonzalez, Morris I. Liebman Professor of Law at Loyola University Chicago School of Law. We will discuss her article, Climate Change, Race, and Migration, which is published in the Journal of Law and Political Economy. So welcome to the show, Carmen. Thank you for inviting me. My pleasure. I'm so glad that Rebecca Bradstees uh, introduced us, and I really uh, enjoyed reading your uh, fascinating and quite provocative paper. Um, so I-, I was wondering, Carmen, if you could start by talking about the relationship between climate change and capitalism. In my article, I look at the issue of climate change through a particular lens, and that is the lens of racial capitalism. And when I use the term racial capitalism, I'm referring to certain key characteristics. The first is extractivism, a system based on the plunder of nature without any corresponding obligation to replenish it or care for the planet. So we drill, we mine, we consume fossil fuels, and we are disrupting the planet's climate. It's also a system based on accumulation through dispossession. For example, the dispossession of indigenous peoples that created enormous wealth for Europe and provided the inputs that launched the Industrial Revolution. Um, And then finally, white supremacy is part of the picture because it was the justification for the conquest of indigenous peoples, for the enslavement of Africans, and for the colonization of Asia, Africa, and Latin America. And international law is a central part of the picture. It justified the conquest. So what I do in my article is to explore the relationship between the fossil fuel-based global economy and racism. And I argue that we actually can't address the problem of climate change unless we are also intentional and deliberate about recognizing its racialized dimensions and combating the racial hierarchies that create obstacles to addressing climate change and climate change-induced displacement. So I want to begin by talking about the fact that climate change, as I'm sure the list, many of the listeners know, is not a misfortune. It's an injustice. It's caused primarily by the greenhouse gas emissions of the world's wealthiest inhabitants, but it's wreaking havoc first and foremost on the peoples who contributed least to the problem. For example, Nicaragua and Honduras, whose greenhouse gas emissions are minimal, were devastated just last week by Hurricane Iota. Millions of people were displaced. Um, Race is embedded in the history of the fossil fuel economy. The Industrial Revolution was made possible by the colonization of the Americas and the transatlantic slave trade. The colonies supplied Europe with gold, silver, cotton for European factories, and sugar and other agricultural commodities to feed the industrial workforce. Um, The second way that race is embedded in the fossil fuel economy is through the industry's disproportionate impact on racialized and poor communities all over the world who live in the shadow of oil drilling operations, fracking, 
petroleum refineries, coal mines, power plants, and oil and gas pipelines and have to deal with the health consequences of these industries. The third way that the fossil fuel economy is racialized is that fossil fuels are concentrated in certain regions of the world, particularly the Middle East, that have been targeted over and over again for invasion, occupation, and exploitation. And when displaced Arab and Muslim populations seek refuge in Europe or the United States, they are racialized. They're classified as potential terrorists and excluded. And then finally, when we look at who is most susceptible to climate-related disasters, in the United States and abroad, it's overwhelmingly people classified as non-white who live in areas that are disproportionately exposed to hurricanes, floods, droughts, and rising sea levels. Susceptibility to climate change is a function of two variables. One is exposure, and the other one is social and economic vulnerability. When it comes to exposure, the greenhouse gas emissions of the world's wealthiest countries have increased the exposure of so many to climate change. And when it comes to social and economic vulnerability, the communities that are most susceptible to climate change-related disasters have been rendered vulnerable by colonialism, by post-colonial military and political interventions, and by disadvantageous neoliberal economic policies that have been foisted upon them by the United States and Europe. These policies and practices have increased poverty and they've deprived countries of the resources they need to adapt to climate change. Racial subordination is the thread that unites the history of fossil fuels from the moment they're extracted from the ground to the deposition of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And what I argue in my article is that racial subordination is also embedded in the emerging law and policy responses to climate change. We can see with our own eyes what, has, what is happening in the United States in terms of the detention, the mass incarceration of immigrants, the separation of children from their families, the expulsion of people to places where their lives are in jeopardy. Europe is no better. Thousands and thousands of migrants from Africa and the Middle East are dying in the Mediterranean because of policies that are designed to prevent them from arriving and to criminalize those who would actually go out and rescue them. Um, on the Mediterranean. So this is where we are currently, but most of the scholarship on climate change and climate displacement does not address race at all. How do you think climate change is likely to affect migration specifically? Climate fuel disasters are displacing record numbers of people all over the world. Um, Central American migration into the U.S. exploded in 2015, for example, due not only to poverty and conflict, but also to widespread drought that deprived people of the means of subsistence. We know that in 10 to 15 years, the small island states in the Pacific will become uninhabitable. That alone is going to create 65 million climate displaced persons who will have to go somewhere. 
most people don't realize that the conflict in Syria was driven by many things, but one of the one of the drivers was drought that resulted in a huge migration of people from rural to urban areas who were then not provided with adequate assistance by the government. Conflicts occurred and ultimately it turned into an outright rebellion against the government. So climate change most of the time does not itself provoke migration. The small island developing states are an example, a a counterexample where they will become uninhabitable. In most places, what climate change will do is exacerbate conditions on the ground that will lead people to migrate. Most people move within their own country, but the problem we have is that international law does not have a means of addressing climate displacement. First, international law has mounted a completely inadequate response to climate change. The climate treaties have failed to curb global temperature increases and they failed to provide adaptation assistance to climate-vulnerable states and peoples. The 1951 Refugee Convention doesn't admit, doesn't have a mechanism for admitting climate-displaced persons, only persons who, who suffer political persecution. The climate treaties don't have a mechanism for the admission of climate-displaced persons. And in the absence of a binding legal framework, there are three responses that are emerging um, to address climate displacement. But these emerging responses, if you scratch the surface, are also deeply racialized. So I'm going to walk through them. um, And then I want to talk a little bit about what climate displaced persons themselves are asking for. So the first response is the national security response. That response demonizes climate migrants as disruptive uh, forces, as barbarians crashing the gates of civilization. And what that approach has done is it's fostered the criminalization, detention, and expulsion of migrants all over the world. And sometimes environmentalists, for example, who want countries to pay attention to climate change will use the specter of mass migration to illustrate how serious it is and it is serious, but it can foster a xenophobic reaction. And that's one response that we see, and we see it with the Central American refugees. The second approach is the humanitarian approach that treats climate displaced persons as essentially primitive, backward, in need of charity rather than justice. It depoliticizes climate change. It presents it as um, as a misfortune and not as the injustice that it is. And it, because it's voluntary, it's unlikely to succeed at a time of rising nationalism and xenophobia. The third response, which I call the migration management response, encourages climate displaced persons to essentially fend for themselves by taking temporary jobs abroad in order to finance climate adaptation at home through remittances. What this approach does is it shifts responsibility for climate change adaptation away from the affluent countries that cause the problem and onto the backs of the world's poorest and most climate vulnerable people. Also, the exodus of able-bodied workers could exacerbate the climate vulnerability of people who remain behind, who are trapped, who don't have the resources to leave. 
it will produce a brain drain, labor shortages, and also reliance on remittances that can be very erratic. Race is also relevant here. Who is going to be admitted as a temporary worker? Probably the desirable migrants, lighter skinned, male, highly skilled. Who is going to be left behind or have to migrate informally, illegally? Those who are darker skinned, female, older. So what I do in my paper is I conclude by asking what are climate vulnerable states and peoples themselves calling for? And I want to be clear that the first thing that they're calling for is for affluent states to fulfill their obligations under the climate treaties and take responsibility for reducing their greenhouse gas emissions before it's too late. Right? That is first and foremost. Second, climate vulnerable people want to remain in their home countries. They're asking affluent states to honor their commitments under climate treaties to provide financing for adaptation. And then finally, if the climate emergency worsens and adaptation is not sufficient to protect people from harm, what climate vulnerable states and peoples are demanding is a legal framework that protects their existence as a self-governing community their language, their culture, their traditions of self-governance, even if this has to occur on the territory of another state. So how should we think about responsibility for climate change and the response to climate change? We need to take very seriously some principles that have emerged from the climate treaty that are not well known in other areas of international law, but they're very powerful. One of these principles is the principle of common but differentiated responsibility for climate change. Common means every country in the world has an obligation to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions, to take action to combat climate change, and to adapt to climate change. Differentiated means that that obligation is different depending upon a country's historic and current contribution to climate change. So, for example, greenhouse gases, such carbon dioxide, to use the primary greenhouse gas, resides in the atmosphere for several hundred years. That means that the changes that we are seeing today are a product of the Industrial Revolution, as well as everything that has come after. Scientists have now actually tabulated and calculated the greenhouse gases that emerged historically and are emerging currently from different countries. And what we find is that the U.S. and Europe, for example, are responsible for over half of historic emissions. So under the principle of common but differentiated responsibility, those who contributed most to the problem have an obligation to do to act on the problem, to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions, to finance adaptation in countries in the global south, and to recognize that if adaptation is not enough and that people have to move, there is an obligation to do two things. One, to admit countries into their territory in proportion to the harm that they have caused in the world, i.e. their greenhouse gas emissions and climate change, and or to finance the mobility decisions, right? Because a lot of people don't necessarily want to move to the United States, Europe, 
Australia, New Zealand. They might actually choose to move to another country that has a stronger cultural connection, a country where they have family. And currently, with respect to refugees fleeing war and conflict, the states of the global south are hosting 85% of the world's refugees with essentially no assistance. So a responsibility-based framework would say to the most affluent countries, based on the principle of common but differentiated responsibility, you have an obligation to either admit people into your territory or to facilitate their movement someplace else, to assist them and to assist the countries that actually give them refuge. So you might wonder, what does this all have to do with race, right? How does race come into the picture? I talked about race throughout the life cycle of fossil fuels. Race comes into the picture when displacement occurs because so many of those who are displaced are persons who are classified as non-white and because the response of affluent countries has been exclusion, xenophobia, build walls, build fortresses. So one of the things that my article asks is who benefits from this? Who benefits from the demonization of migrants and the militarization of borders? And there are a couple of beneficiaries. The first is the corporations that provide surveillance, border walls, and detention facilities, right? Imprisonment is now being privatized. Secondly, it's the security apparatus of the state. Third, it's the businesses that exploit undocumented workers. But finally, it's authoritarian populists who demonize migrants in order to persuade working class whites to support policies that increase economic inequality and hasten catastrophic climate change. Greenhouse gases don't respect national borders, but national elites deploy racialized systems of border control to perpetuate the illusion that those who regard themselves as white can somehow escape the consequences of climate change and the consequences of extreme economic inequality by building walls and fortresses. What racism does is it allows corporations to pursue policies that are disastrous for the planet because those who are most immediately affected are persons classified as non-white. So what racism does is to create divisions between people whose economic and ecological vulnerability should serve as the basis for solidarity and resistance. Because at the end of the day, as the planet's ecosystems are brought to the brink of collapse, as the climate emergency gets worse, everyone, but perhaps the ultra-affluent, are going to become frontline communities in a world that is very damaged and very dangerous. So what I conclude in the end is that deconstructing racial hierarchies is absolutely necessary in order to foster the collective action that is required to address climate change. So in your paper, you suggest we ought to adopt a response to climate change and migration based in self-determination. What does that mean and what would that look like? 
It's a great, great question. Um, it's the small island states in particular and also indigenous peoples that are raising self-determination as an alternative to all of these other approaches that, uh, that, are, that are being discussed to deal with uh, the problem of climate displacement. Self-determination is a process, right? It's not, um, it's not a particular conclusion. What it is, is allowing people to decide for themselves um, what kind of life they want to live when they're going to migrate, where they're going to migrate, whether they're going to migrate, as opposed to having that imposed from above, imposed externally. For indigenous peoples, and many of the people in the small island states are indigenous, this is is crucial to their existence as a people. If they are forced to migrate individually, to move and assimilate, that essentially is the completion of the process of genocide. That would produce their disappearance as a people. So this ability to collectively determine their fate is is extremely um, important to the perpetuation of governments and to the perpetuation of peoples who are a distinct people with a distinct language, a distinct culture, a distinct worldview. Um, so the idea is for a different type of migration, we, def- we generally think of migration as something that individuals do, but it, it requires a change in international law and international thinking to allow peoples to migrate collectively as a group to a different physical location while maintaining their identity, either as a nation state or as uh, as an independent indigenous population. And it's going to be, it's a, it, is, it is a challenge to a system of international law that, that doesn't recognize interrelationships and interdependence. We think about states as if they were these um, billiard balls that sort of crash into each other from time to time. When the reality is, if you look historically and currently, we are economically linked and we are ecologically linked. And with those links come responsibility, responsibility for the impacts that the policies of some countries, i.e. the high greenhouse gas emitters, are having on other countries, and also responsibility for the historic damage that has been done directly to other countries. So, for example, when we think about the U.S. and Central America, the U.S. has a very, very deep history in, in Central America of military invasions, of overthrowing popularly elected governments, of financing civil wars, and of imposing economic policies under the rubric of free trade that actually exacerbated poverty. So the self-determination approach for it to succeed has to be linked to a responsibility-based framework. The danger is that it will be um, the self-determination approach will be seen as some form of collective self-help and that nobody has any responsibility. And what's happening currently is that, is that there are communities all over the world that are being forced to move with zero assistance from their respective governments. And that is really tragic. So I understand that Western states and the global north 
have a moral obligation to respond to climate change. Uh, and ideally, I think in some of the ways that you suggest, unfortunately, I feel like historically we haven't been all that good at observing those moral obligations. Do you have reasons to think that things might improve in the future? The thing that I see happening that did not exist before is that we are going through a period of racial reckoning within the United States. Um, I have been amazed. I've gone to some of the protests. In the past, protests organized by the Black Lives Matter movement were attended primarily by African Americans and maybe other people of color. What I have seen now is a complete shift in the national consciousness. And that, I think, creates an opening, an opening for a true reconciliation with this country's history. Um, what I find when I teach my students as law students is that they haven't been given a, a proper foundation in U.S. history or world history. We haven't had the kind of truth and reconciliation process that Germany had, for example, in terms of its role in the Holocaust. And we're impoverished by that. We're divided as a country by that. I would hope, I don't know if it will happen, but I would hope that we are at the beginning of acknowledging the relationship that the United States has had as a country or that settlers have had with indigenous peoples, with Africans who were enslaved, with the the with Latin America, specifically Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean, um, that the United States has repeatedly invaded or dominated economically, so that those connections become clear. This is going to happen instantaneously. But I don't think that we can overcome so many of the divisions that we face now without a process of truth-telling and without a process of reconciliation. And I have never seen a moment before in my lifetime when this was even possible. Well, Carmen, thanks so much for coming on the show and talking about this excellent paper. Um, there's an awful lot more in it, and I hope listeners will check out the article itself, which will be in the in the in the liner notes for the episode. And I really appreciate uh, talking to you about it. Thank you so much for for having me. Tornado, the hurricane, the worst of all. They come and go through Florida, blow down 14 feet of wall. Hurricane is so powerful, blow the housing way where I live. Hurricane is so powerful 
know the housing way where I live. It may have rise on your head, give you fever with cold chills. When our clothes are not needed, you spend money rebuilding your home. When our clothes are not needed, you spend money rebuilding your home. When the ocean gets rough, you're not in Florida all alone. Let's get together now, play a little while. If the wind don't blow me away Lord, I really like Florida If the wind don't blow me away But if that don't never happen I'll be in Florida the rest of my day 